0: hello and welcome to the do one better podcast in philanthropy sustainability and social entrepreneurship i'm your host alberto ligi from london and as you probably know we have a wonderful guest on board today it's doug griffiths who is the president of the oak foundation and the oak foundation is truly a remarkable organization i believe they are granting out around 300 million dollars a year annually They have a huge geographic footprint and, thematically speaking, very diverse as well. So we're going to learn about the Oak Foundation. We're going to learn about Doug as well. And if you're into philanthropy, if you're a philanthropist, if you're running a foundation, working at a nonprofit, just get out a pen and paper because today might be a really insightful conversation for you. So, Doug, uh, welcome on to the Do One Better podcast
1: Well, thank you very much, Alberto, and that's a bit of a build-up, I think. Uh, I know I won't live up to it, but I really look forward (laughs) to exchanging some ideas with you.
0: Great, great. I guess we could start by uh, finding out a little bit about the Oak Foundation. What's it all about? Where is it based? What do you do?
1: Okay. Uh, So, Oak Foundation commits its resources to address issues of global, social, and environmental concern, particularly those that have a major impact on the lives of the disadvantaged. And the, uh, you know, what do we do conversation, um, you'll have to, I think, uh, have a a drink for that because it's really quite a a, um, a diverse portfolio. And that diversity really reflects um, the key ingredient of Oak Foundation, which is that it's a uh, family-led foundation. Um, It's professionally staffed, but the family remains deeply involved in the foundation. And the issue areas reflect the passions and the interests of the family, which is why we have such a diverse portfolio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the resources of Oak Foundation originated in interests of duty free shoppers business, which Alan Parker helped build, and it started small in 1983, where they made grants uh, in Denmark uh, to organizations supporting single mothers and torture victims, and in Zimbabwe to groups supporting vulnerable children and families, particularly at the community levels. And Alan um, is from Zimbabwe, and his wife Yetta, who also founded the. Um, funded founded the foundation um, grew up in Denmark so that's sort of right. where they started there but in the early nineties they started um, hiring professional staff and um, and developing the programs. So 10 years ago, we had about 48 staff members. Now we're at, at almost 100. Really? Wow. And as you said, our grant making um, is just under $300 million. It, it, it kind of depends on if they have some um, big bets that they are pursuing. Um, sometimes it, it pushes us higher or gets us a little bit lower. That's uh, a remarkable
0: so, sum. It's a truly yes, remarkable it, it, sum.
1: Now, it's a huge um, blessing to be able to um, you know, invest the resources uh, to meet the family's aspirations. And you mentioned um, sort of disparate program areas. Mm-hmm. So you know, if I can just take a minute to Please. talk about them really briefly just to give you a, a feel for them. And I think we will have some time to talk about maybe some examples of uh, what we do in, in some of those areas. I don't think we'll want to dive into all. But we have six main program areas um the environment which is our largest where we work to safeguard a clean climate future maintain the health of the oceans and ensure the safety of endangered wildlife Um, our second largest program is prevent child sexual abuse and Mm -hmm. that name is purposefully um, in your face Mm -hmm. um, because we strive to do just that Um, we want to end sexual abuse of children and support communities so that children can thrive Uh, We have a learning differences program. A lot of the family um, has dyslexia. uh, So we support initiatives that unlock the creativity and power of every young person, especially those furthest from opportunity and equip them to shape more just and equitable communities. Uh, We have a housing and homelessness program and that's headquartered in in London actually. Mm -hmm. Um, And that envisions a world where everyone can flourish and access equitable opportunities and live in safe, And stable home. Mm -hmm. Our international human rights program is also headquartered in London, where they work to protect and promote the human rights of all people, and they really focus on accountability. And then we have an Issues Affecting Women program, which supports organizations, especially grassroots women-led organizations, to build a world where women are safe and free, and they have an equal chance in life. Uh, Our largest program, actually, I said the environment, but our largest program is actually the Special Interest Program, um, which Um, provides grants in areas that fall outside of the remit of those areas where the family has a deep interest. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And then we have four national programs in Brazil, Denmark, India, and Zimbabwe. And I know that sounds like a lot, um, but there's one common thread, and it's not a very, um, I I think, sophisticated one. Um, The trustees care deeply about fairness and the health of the planet. And all of our work requests reflects that commitment
0: Mm. it's heartening to see that you're so involved with the environment and uh, if i'm not mistaken in terms of philanthropic giving just in general climate is actually a very small amount of of philanthropy it
1: it is and um and it's i I think one of Yes, it's one of our, our deep found, um, frustrations, and uh, Christian Parker, who is the lead trustee for the climate side, you know, he's really worked hard, um, and it's one of the things I think we're most proud of, of, of building up some of those organizations that try to um, strengthen the ecosystem of climate funding. Um, so that's Climate Works in California, which really um, has done an, an amazing job in, in Building the science and understanding the the um, what is going on in the planet and what philanthropy might do to address that, and similarly with the European Climate Foundation, and we've just participated in the in the launch of something called the Climate Leadership Initiative, okay. Which we hope to be um, sort of a, a bespoke, um, uh, this is going to be a pretentious word, but like a, a, you know, almost a concierge service to help. Okay. Um, philanthropies or individual donors identify where they can enter the climate space, because I think Makes it sense. can be really daunting for people, right? Sure. Um, Cause it's such a, I mean, a it can be very technical and scientific where, you know, you're talking about gigatons and, and this, whereas actual philanthropic engagement to help the climate can take such different forms from climate justice action to you know really technical scientific studies and um, so we're hoping that the climate leadership initiative can help um, people who are curious about Jumping into that space to find their path.
0: Hmm. And, and so tell me what what's the? Um, what's the program's name
1: exactly? It's actually the climate leadership initiative. Climate. CLI. Leadership. Okay, and currently it's being hosted by climate works mm-hmm. um, but we have um, there are program officers in um, uh, California, in London, and in Geneva, um, and um, she happens to sit with us uh, in our building when we okay. are sitting together. Um, but, you know, they really, um, it, the effort is to talk to um, high net worth individuals and philanthropies to see um, where they might want to engage. Excellent. And, and I think one of the exciting things for, for me is that we also um, launched a uh, $20 million climate Justice Resilience Fund um, about four years ago to try to seed the field a bit to talk more about climate justice. So um, yes, climate change work is underfunded in philanthropy, um, and and in some of that there is some um, some thinking about what does this mean for you know coal miners or um, people right. who work in in power plants and how do we help them? But there's been Really, very little funding toward people on the ground who are directly impacted by climate change mm-hmm. and so what we have done with the fund is we just wanted to pilot it a bit to see what um, what lessons learned there are what's what grant making could look like in that space and we looked um, specifically at the Arctic uh, at the highlands of East Africa and the um, Bay of Bengal like the Sundarbans and mm-hmm. the um, um, the Delta area there, focusing on women and youth um, and what, um, what grant making might look like. And since then, there's been a lot more interest in climate justice and, um, and how grant makers might um, engage. And so we're looking at relaunching the fund in some way. We have absolutely no ownership on it. Right. Um, and there, there are a number of philanthropies that are thinking of coming together and launching a um, a, a joint fund to try to support people who are affected by climate change.
0: Excellent. And by the way, I I do hear this all the time. You have philanthropists who are looking to get into uh, improving the climate crisis uh, state of affairs, and they're not just quite sure where to start. Um, So I think it's great that you're going to be, and this is all up and running now. So if somebody's listening to this, they...
1: It is. Um, Climate Justice um, Resilience Fund is has a website, and the Climate Leadership Initiative um, is up and running and very active. And they've actually, uh, I think, um, secured some significant investments. And obviously, you know, they're not taking credit for it, but the, in as a result of their engagement, they've helped people build their comfort. I think, you know, as you said
0: how did you how did you structure these or how did you who sat down and said look let's do this let's uh let's structure the program like that this is the need this is what we can do this is how we can convene
1: you, you know a lot of these efforts have come out of um the climate works foundation and and the the funders table of that and um you know just what you're trying to foster with this podcast of of leaders in philanthropy talking about the issues um, taking a moment to step out of their daily demands, which mm-hmm. can be, you know, overwhelming for all of us, and think a bit strategically of, you know, where are the gaps? What what aren't we doing? Um, and so certainly that's what happened with, you know, the Climate Leadership Initiative, where um, uh, Christian and others, you know, people would come up to them as people have come up to you and said, you know, I would like to help, but I don't know how. And, yeah. and this is too hard, and, and, and what do we, um, and so what we've tried to do, and I and um, I think there's been a similar um, approach with the rollback plastics um, mm-hmm. move, movement, um, is to just have platforms and big tents, and, uh, you know, I, I've only been at Oak for 18 months, so I can't take credit for a lot of things, so I can say perhaps boastful things that, that I just admire, but you know, Oak Foundation is a very neutral name, um, and the trustees chose that purposefully so to, to put our grantees in the limelight and not the family or, mm-hmm. or the foundation. And um, so that we don't believe we have the answers. Um, we know we don't have the answers. Um, and so if, if you can create platforms, if you can create networks that allow people to explore at their own pace, often really dynamic things can emerge. Mm -hmm. And then if you're nimble enough within those platforms to be able to surge funding to um campaigns um, that then take off as movements, you can really have a transform, um, transformative impact. Yeah. And we've done that, I think, in the climate space, um, sometimes effectively, sometimes not. We're actually funding some new incubator movements that, that mm-hmm. can maybe be a bit more nimble. Uh, because, you know, as, as, as we pointed out, Oak has become pretty big. Yeah. And we're not good, and we shouldn't be making small grants. Um, but we should be making big grants to people who can make small grants um, with very little overhead and very little response time. And Mm -hmm. and that's what we're trying to do to push money into the field and climate and to push money um, with plastics that was very effective of, you know, when there are opportunities, when there are organizations that are ready to strike. Mm -hmm. And I think the next campaign that we're excited about is on food. Um, And we've hired a campaigner on food, and we're trying to – See who might be interested in 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 exploring this, and the idea would be would be super big tent. There are people who are interested in um, land use. There are people who are interested in um, food production. There are people who are interested in you know local sourcing. Mm-hmm. There are people who are interested in um, plant based solutions. Uh, you know, just there, there's a a ton of engagement, and I think all of it is really important. But there hasn't been a huge amount of movement on the food side of things I think partially because it's one of those really big issues that can be intimidating sure and so our hope is by you know um, helping to fund this platform um, you can really get people to say okay um, I'm willing to take this risk now because a there are others um, who are, will be in it with me um, and B I don't have to start from scratch I can just pick an engagement point and and take off
0: great. And you 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 touched on the on the uh, grant size, but um, if you're giving away three hundred million annually, I would imagine to keep your sanity, you necessarily (laughs) need to have larger grants. Um, And yours are what they're normally in the in the millions or or high six figures. Is that fair to say? Yes, that's fair to say.
1: So um, we do about um, so in twenty nineteen we did three hundred seventy seven grants to three hundred forty two organizations. In 37 countries for a total of 294 million. Right. And so our our you know the average grant size is the high three figures as you say. So just a little bit about our philosophy on that because Mm -hmm. I think it's it helps give that context is um we only exceptionally give a grant for less than three years. Um, Right. And you know I think that's good grant making. You know sometimes we have a shorter one if we do it really is just um to help the organization prepare for a three-year grant. Mm -hmm. We are really trying to move to five-year grants. Um, Just, you know, as you said, we can't, we will drive ourselves crazy. uh, And we don't want to, um, we want to invest in the grant making. It's, you know, the grant's not in the process of it. So we're trying to lighten that load. We are in a, a process that we call working smarter where we're trying to figure out how we can be the grant maker we aspire to be. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is, you know, long-term core grants and, you know, you can get really caught up in what's the definition of a core grant, but, um, you know, the idea is that they be as flexible as possible. And I think we found out in COVID that we are a pretty flexible grant maker because we didn't have to rewrite any grant letters really. Yeah. We are we are able to just let people shift resources and do their, do their thing.
0: Interesting. Um,
1: we are involved with, you know, there are a number of, of donors who are working on, um, what is sufficient overhead. Uh, and we don't have a number. Um, we are, we would be comfortable with organizations that have basically 70% overhead. If that's what it takes to do what they need to do. So we're trying to lighten our processes because over the years, you know, different requirements come in and we're now trying to back them off and to be that more trust-based grant maker that we want to be. So so we make big grants, but we really miss the contact with smaller ones. So we are, you know, we sometimes have these donor collaboratives. We do use intermediaries. Okay. um, but it depends on, you know, each program has a bit of its own approach and our, our women's program funds.
0: Any, any intermediaries that you, you would like to highlight here?
1: You know, it, it depends. So on ones where we're really trying to do, um, um, for example, on our Prevent Child Sexual Abuse program, they decided to set aside um, $3 million to help organizations survive covid Mm-hmm. And and we just can't do that. We're not nimble enough. We're not. Um, we we don't want to have the the grant making resources. So we've gone with Tides mm-hmm. um, to put together a really um, quick release grant making fund for under one hundred thousand dollars a pop. Right. Um, we have similar ones with Rockefeller and and other big intermediaries that do those sorts of things. But what I wanted to more talk about with our women's program is they work to fund women's funding collaboratives. Okay. Um, and we have nurtured and funded almost 10. Um, some have graduated um, and are autonomous, working on the, um, their own. Um, one we're really excited about, the Talawa, Talawa Fund, mm-hmm. um, which is basically we've asked them to create themselves. Uh, and they're really doing some innovative things on power. Um, and, and so it's really challenging us to think about what the power dynamics are, um, that even, you know, calling something monitoring evaluation puts a real power dynamic sure. in, into the equation. Sure. And so they've come up with some really interesting, um, um, even phrasing on things where, you know, they're not... Monitoring they're shepherding. Okay. Um, I was gonna ask you what is the
0: alternative terminology to
1: do that? Uh, uh, and they're not asking for reporting. They're coming together regularly Excellent. So, you know, that can be that can be difficult with you know the our large um, you know NGO grantee partners, but um, you know, we're really um, I think being a family foundation and um, you know for me uh, night coming from government. It's just so empowering to be able to take these sorts of risks and trust people Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I think we've had very rare true failures um, but we learn from every um, Underperforming grant right and we don't have a very big monitoring evaluation Program, it's I think some outsiders would criticize us for that Okay, but we feel that that action really should be within the grantee partner and that we don't need to be able to have really strict elaborate monetary evaluation systems because that would take away from um getting money into the field
0: interesting very very interesting and indeed i think as you pointed out it's not exactly how everybody else does it this is a particular way that you guys are doing it.
1: No, very much not. And, um, <laughs> and I think you know we struggle with it. You know, we. we um, I, I came from. You know, I'm not sure how much you're aware of uh, PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. That mm-hmm. um, you know, it's just done such an extraordinary job with HIV/AIDS. And I think one of the strengths has been the data collection, analytics, and and monitoring, So you can see. Where are the infections? How is transmission taking place? You know, how do you test and treat? You know all these things that I wish we would apply in COVID. Uh So you can see the power of that, but it's extraordinarily Expensive and burdensome um, So I also see the power of Oaks approach, which is a much more um, Almost qualitative. Um, yeah,
0: yeah, one. yeah the um, how do you choose your How do you choose not necessarily your grantees, although that's a fair question as well, but also those um, third parties who are in between you and the final recipient?
1: Um, Mm -hmm. How do you go about that? So we normally um, through, maybe I'll just give a a tangible example. Um, One of our trustees wanted to start doing some work on psychological violence. Okay. And so we decided to hire a program officer who would be able to you know, we, of course, um, contracted a, a research scan, but there's been very little work on it um, and and very little, you know, even defining what does psychological violence mean. And, and, you know, in the UK, there's actually law on it, but that's extraordinarily rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had a hard time finding a program officer. Um, we hired one about um, 15 months ago, and she's just been... Um, You know, doing shoe leather, um, trying to look around and see who is working in the field, which organizations would would like to do this work if they were able to um, have funding to do it. Um, there's a a Danish organization, a a, a Danish woman who has created a uh, an organization that supports. Victims of domestic violence and she has basically done a lot of work um, On psychological violence because she was a victim of it mm-hmm. um, But she's never had funding to do that um, You know, she gets funding from the Danish state to provide shelter for women who are experienced and and then domestic violence, but not that second step of What does psychological violence look like? What's the impact on a family? And so mm-hmm. we've been able to now fund her to reach out and do some of that work. So it's it's not scientific. Ours is much more, I, I think, organic. Um, we um, touchy, don't really expect. Or touchy, touchy-feely. <laughs> exactly. Touchy-feely, but hopefully in a strategic and inclusive way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And how did you get into all of this? So you mentioned a little bit about your, your background, but tell us, so you've been with Oak now for a year and a half or so. That's correct. And uh so, where were you before, and how did you end up at this uh dream job? Some of us might say
1: <laughs> um, well, actually, that's exactly what i say and I, I usually say I won the lottery <laughs> um, the, the trustees made the rash decision to hire me yeah. um and because i I don't come from the world of philanthropy, right and um I was surprised myself uh so um social justice is always been really important to me. I studied political science, economics and literature at university, um, but I went to a Catholic university. And so, you know, social justice, there was a social justice framing on almost every issue. And that really colored my worldview. And I learned about the foreign service exam from a friend in college. I can remember signing up and thinking, how cool, there's a test to be a diplomat. But um, (laughs) I was not a very sophisticated 21-year-old. I put the test out of my mind and I went, down to Puerto Rico, where I did volunteer work in an informal settlement Uh above the city of Pulse. and I was um, about to enter a master's program to um, look at sort of development and poverty alleviation, and I improbably passed the foreign service exam, so I became a bit of an accidental diplomat,
0: Uh Um,
1: and I really loved the diversity of that career, and I did it for over 30 years and had the opportunity to serve in nine countries on four continents, um, mostly focused on economics and multilateral diplomacy um, You know trying to use as many levers as possible to build prosperity and increase opportunity and forge Mm -hmm. you know more inclusive societies and I really came to try to build things around um, peace building Yeah, you know, which is a more complicated comprehensive um, inclusive and, and ultimately sustainable way of looking at peacemaking and I, I, I really loved the, the career, and I think I'm very ADHD, so moving around is extraordinarily <laughs> rewarding for me. Um, but while serving as ambassador to Mozambique, I realized this is the best job I will ever have, and that I had accomplished everything I had dreamed of doing. <laughs> and Little um, did you know. Well, okay, in that phase, but and so okay. I started looking at, you know, okay, what do I do for Act Two? Um, yeah. you know, I'm ready to to move on. And uh, in Mozambique, I worked closely with a number of philanthropies, some of whom were doing really creative, innovative things. And um, you know, uh, I don't know if you know Greg Carr. Hmm. Uh, he's having an enormous impact working in public-private partnership and um, shepherding the recovery of Gorongosa National Park and improve the lives of people living around the park. And he really pioneered that idea of um, people and parks. Uh, and I really started thinking about what did the, you know, look at these advantages that private philanthropies can bring to driving solutions to global problems. And serendipitously Oak was exploring funding Gorongosa while I was deeply involved in the park and community mm-hmm. outreach work. And next thing, you know, I won the lottery.
0: Amazing. Amazing. Well, you're not the only diplomat who's made that transition. I mean, yes, Patrick Gaspard. Exactly, David Miliband, who's also David made Miliband, it. David Miliband, yes. Yeah. yeah. So you're, you know, good company there. And um, any any insights on the foundation side that you that were either counterintuitive or you weren't expecting before you actually formally made that transition from the from the diplomatic corps to uh, to the foundations world?
1: You know, I. Um... I'm deeply fortunate that I landed at Oak. Um, I will say that I think um, some foundations are more institutionalized and inward-looking than I had expected. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that we uh, – I know it's something we at Oak struggle with – Of um, you know, as one tries, especially as we have grown, and I sometimes think of us as a gangly adolescent, right, of doubling mm-hmm. in size in 10 years. Um, and you you need to set up internal processes, but sometimes you can start looking inward too much.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: that's something that, you know, our trustees really want to guard against. Um, they they never want us over 100 staff um, for that reason, so that we you know, don't become institutionalized that we really look outward. So I, I, I think yeah. that was um, first, and secondly, that um, I think some there was less of a focus on the grantee partners than I had anticipated. Okay. Um, I, I don't think at Oak, I think we do a pretty good job of of getting out and seeing them. And I just, I, I do worry with COVID that that will become harder. Um, you know, for now, we certainly at Oak are still doing very, very well with those partnerships. But I do worry that um, with reduced travel, you know, that muscle memory is going to get weaker. Mm-hmm. And um, getting to know new dynamic organizations is going to take a lot of investment. Mm-hmm.
0: Regarding COVID, by the way, and not to digress too much, but... Uh-huh. Um uh is that something you're you're tracking in terms of you know if if a a vaccine becomes available there's been so much talk about well who's going to get the vaccine first and how do we make sure that everybody gets it not just uh folks in the us or the uk um is that something that you're thinking look if a vaccine becomes available and we're able to help you know let's think about how we might be able to mobilize our resources when the time comes if the time comes to uh, to make sure that there is that um, you know that the vaccine is deployed widely.
1: So you, you know our um, we increased um, our funding. Um, so for, uh, we'll hit about ten percent um, as a result of of COVID, right. um, and it was mostly just immediate surge funding to I think do two things: one, inject money into the field. Um, to ensure that, you know, organizations were able to survive the initial shock and then build confidence that, mm-hmm. um, and we did some targeted funding on, you know, two areas that were hard hit, but most of it was really just to, um, existing organizations. Uh, and then we did a lot in domestic violence because, um, yeah. we were very worried that once one came out of confinement and people were once again able to, um, you know, escape that, that there would be, um, a real need for, for support. Uh, we're doing a little bit now on some, um, vaccine research funding, Mm -hmm. but I Mm -hmm. think that's, we recognize that others have a lot more expertise than us on that. And I think that that's one really where governments and, you know, foundations like Gates that just have extraordinary epidemiologists, um, on staff are much better at, at doing. Yeah. And we have spoken, as you said, um, you know, one of the things we're looking at is is cold chains. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's going to happen um, in Africa, um, for example, which I know fairly well, in order to ensure that those vaccines get to everyone who um, who needs them, we'll be building out huge um, cold chains. And you know, I'm not sure. You know, the Kigali um, Cooling Initiative really focuses on a lot of those refrigerants are really dangerous to the environment right and so as we as we build as we build out you know maybe our sweet space might be as we build out these cold chains to deliver the vaccines to help ensure that the decisions that we make are climate friendly as well Mm -hmm. and that's i think an area where philanthropy philanthropy could probably help because Mm -hmm. there there will be additional costs and if you're a policy trying to ensure vaccines reach you know, your entire population, and there is a you know five percent or ten percent additional cost to have a climate-friendly solution. Well, you may not make that decision, but if yeah. philanthropies can step in and make that a um, you know, budget-neutral decision, then you might go ahead. Mm. So, well, that's one of the areas we're exploring. I think yeah. you know, once one one gets a bit closer, we'll we'll be able to decide, but we're certainly monitoring it.
0: Yeah. And so you, you briefly mentioned the um, doubling in size over the last 10 years. I was gonna ask you about success for the next 10 years and what <laughs> what does that look like? Tell um, Yeah, what does it look like? And it dovetails nicely with the uh, UN Sustainable Development Goals as well.
1: Yeah, so I think I'm getting back to what I said that, that about being inwardly focused, that we remain curious, you know, ambitious, nimble, and outwardly focused in our grant making and that the trustees see their priorities advanced by the foundation. Uh, I think it means that we're good donors, that we really refine our trust-based philanthropy. We partner effectively with those organizations. Um, success for me means that we're an efficient and effective grant maker, and that's very much not sexy. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, our, inter- our internal processes are, um, are ensuring that, you know, I think two things, one, that they – are as lean as possible mm-hmm. to ha- release more money to, for grant making, and secondly are as unburdensome as possible to um, to our grantee partners uh, and then also I think to you know, quite frankly, you know me and the trustees who look at these 340 grants every year. it's um, yeah, an
0: amazing uh, volume and size.
1: Right, but it's also like an extraordinarily rewarding, and, and you know every day I learn so much, and I think my favorite thing is reading end of grant reports and seeing, you know, what has been accomplished and what organizations have been able, um, able to do. With respect but, to the um, end of
0: grant, with respect to the end of grant, um, do you, you you mentioned you're looking to generally go from. Th- Three-year uh, commitments to five-year commitments. Uh, Are you with with those who you normally deal with on a three-year basis? Do you ideally like to renew, or do you have a position where generally you like to come in and then move away after three years? Uh,
1: no, um, we um, would only rarely not renew. It would have to have been more of a opportunistic right. sort of thing. Um, we generally do um, at least a ten-year grant cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't have hard and fast rules. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think one of our, um, reliance is one of, um, the few almost rules that we have is that we do not want to be, um, the only donor or support of a project. And so I mm-hmm. think over a 10 year arc, we are willing in the first you know, three years to accept a very high level of reliance. Um, we, we provide a lot of capacity building support if necessary, especially on fundraising and things like that. Um, but I think that would be one of the sticking points is if an organization remained highly reliant on Oak throughout, um, a period, you know, we'd have some very serious discussions with them, but, um, you know, I, I think we learn through that. And I, and I think we're finding that, um, uh, at, at 10 years, the program officers need to justify why we continue, but I have not really seen significant pushback from the trustees when the when the program officers say, you know, this is um, extraordinarily, remains a relevant organization that's doing um, important work. And I think that in many cases, there's some really interesting evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it makes sense to continue the relationship.
0: Yeah. And tell me, in terms of a key takeaway for our listeners, what <laughs> what might that be? What is it that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode?
1: Well, I think probably two. And, and look, I'm new to philanthropy, so I'm very much not going to be giving any lessons. But uh, I, I hope that all of us just continue to really explore our our good, our aspirations to be good grant makers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that we, to the extent possible, trust the grantee organizations are as unburdensome as possible, are generous with overhead costs. I'm, I'm just deeply frustrated by, um, and I think it's probably where I come out of, where um, uh, you know governments usually give project grants, and. Um, organizations need to invest in themselves and their people in order to Excel. And so we need to ensure that they have enough, um, core support to fund technology and learning yeah. and, um, hiring people. So I think that would be, you know, the one of just, um, very good pause to ensure that you're, um, a, a good light donor. And I think the second one, and this is like a startling glimpse into the obvious, but, um, you know, we're in desperate need globally of kindness and empathy. So I think it would just be take care of each other. Um, you know, be kind to your family, your colleagues, your staff, your boss. Um, and, and I wrote that in one of our weekly messages to the team during co- COVID and they, uh, they all giggled. Um, but Very well said. You, you know, we're, we're all doing our best here. Right. Um, and I think more kindness and empathy in the workplace and in our daily day operations will, um, greatly improve um, the situation
0: you might have uh you might have a huge inflow of cv applicants uh, <laughs> coming into your human resources office just you know. <laughs> yeah, well, that
1: that hundred person ceiling is going to uh, <laughs> going to weigh heavy on them yeah
0: perfect well doug griffiths president of the oak foundation it has been an absolute pleasure Uh, To our audience, please subscribe to the show. Please share widely with others. It's always so much, uh, so very much appreciated. And Doug, thank you. Uh, I know you're extremely busy. I know you're normally based in Switzerland. Today you're in the U.S. You're traveling a little bit here and there. Uh, I appreciate your time. I appreciate the insight and just your your disposition and and the way you're looking at things. It's very much. um, It's I think it's heartening and I think it's um, it's inspirational as well. well.
1: Thanks, Alberto. It was great fun for me, and I really enjoyed um, learning more about philanthropy through your podcast because I oh, started well. li- listening to a few, and they're really, um, you know, lighthearted and conversational, and, and and fun to listen to.
0: Excellent. We'll keep on listening to that. We have uh, we have some of your colleagues from other foundations coming on board in the not too distant future. Thanks very much, Doug.
1: All right. Thanks, Alberto.